Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Dan Monzani, Managing Director for UK and Ireland at Aurora. Today on the podcast, we're stepping back to look at the energy system as a whole and how it needs to transform in order to be ready for net zero. It's obviously a massive issue in the UK with only 12 years to go until the electricity system needs to be net zero and the date by which all new cars will be electric. But it's a debate in many forms which Aurora analyzes in most, if not all, of the markets in which we operate globally. My guest today is ideally placed to discuss this. Jonathan Brearley is the chief executive of Ofgem, the independent gas and electricity regulator in Great Britain. He's been CEO there since February 2020, just before the pandemic and all the subsequent market turbulence. Uh, And Jonathan first chatted us on the podcast in an epic doubleheader back in late August 2020. (laughs) I think it's fair to say that the period since has been anything but quiet. Um, Before joining Ofgem, Jonathan led electricity market reforms, the director for energy markets and networks at the then uh, Department for Energy and Climate Change, and was director at the Office of Climate Change, a cross-government strategy unit focused on climate change and energy issues, where he led the development of the Climate Change Act. Welcome back to the podcast, Jonathan. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been quite a first three years in the role, hasn't it, with a pandemic followed by an energy crisis. Uh, do you think we've now sufficiently, or you've sufficiently stabilised the market now, notably the retail market, in order to focus more on net zero? Well, um, the first thing to say is I think the thing that both the pandemic and the gas crisis have shown us is we need to be careful in making predictions about what might happen in the future. So um, what I see right now, I do see a market that is stabilising. I do see prices drifting back, not to where they were before, but at least drifting back towards somewhere in the region of the world we used to, to occupy. But we need to also accept that the market remains incredibly sort of stretched. And that means prices may well be very volatile. So I'm really pleased. You know, we're sitting here today a week before a price cap announcement. I think all the analysis says that prices will come down, not to where they were before, but roughly to about, you know, several hundred pounds below where customers are paying their bills right now. Um, And the market does seem stable, but it will take one big event and that will all change. So as a regulator, what we're really doing in the short term is making sure Yes, we can pass on those benefits to customers, but we're ready for a whole range of scenarios. That's really helpful. And of course, this podcast will probably be reaching our listeners uh, shortly after that announcement, and uh, they'll be able to look into the details of what sounds like it might be good news. Um, The other side of this is it's been quite striking in recent news that the uh, scientists are now concerned that it's more likely than not that global temperatures will pass 1.5 degrees of warming since pre-industrial times. Uh, in the next five years, hopefully temporarily. Do you think we'll look back on the last few years as necessarily lost time? Or has something fundamental shifted that enables us to get the support necessary to transform the energy system quickly? Well, look, I mean, there's been lots of massive challenges that have come out of the gas crisis. And I don't think any of us should forget the situation that customers across Europe, actually, have been left in over the last year and a half. We've seen huge high prices, we've seen massive volatility, and we continue to be concerned about the impact that has on vulnerable customers. Now, that said, 
Um, yeah, almost coming back to your first question, the alignment on our energy goals now is much, much stronger than it's ever been. So if we want a cheaper system, if we want a more secure system, and if we want a net zero system, so one where we have tackled our carbon emissions, then all of those things are pointing in the same direction. And one thing that I think is really exciting right now is in addition to looking after today, this regulator, the government, and all of us in the industry are beginning to build that system for the future. The thing that I think has changed for Ofgem is pace is one of the most important factors in that. So the faster we do that, the faster we deliver all elements of our energy strategy, not just climate change. Yeah, there's so much uh, that you're doing at the moment. I had a look at your website shortly before we did this, and we could talk about topical issues from regulatory enforcement on overcharging or prepayment meters, reforms to local energy systems, security. I mean, the list goes on. And what, yes. what I thought we should do is try and step back and um, set ourselves the question, well, what is the system we're aiming for, which you, you were alluding to just now, and, and how are we doing in getting there? I thought the most sensible place might actually be to start with the institutional framework itself, of which you're you're clearly part. The government published a strategy and policy statement recently, uh, which for the benefit of listeners means once approved, there's a number of principles and priorities which Ofgem and indeed the system operator has to legally pay attention to, uh, whilst still making independent decisions. Do you think that'll fundamentally change how you make decisions? Look, I think it's a really good thing. And the thing we've got to acknowledge in energy is the role of government the role of Ofgem, and indeed this new role of the system operator, are highly linked. Government works hard and, and does the work, for example, on the contracting through CFDs for low carbon generation. You know, between us, we set the parameters for the capacity market. So it is more important than ever that we are all following the same kinds of principles. So I do think it will change it. And it's good to see that relationship being made more systematic and more transparent. So whereas I think a lot of these things are sort of negotiated between the three institutions, I think increasingly we'll have to make sure that we understand where each organisation is coming from, respect each of our different roles, but work in a coordinated way to the water goals that we've set out. And as I say, the alignment in terms of destination, I think, has never been stronger. That's interesting. So you, you think it'll change in terms of alignment. It's not necessarily, therefore, well, I'm putting words into your mouth, but some people have hoped it might tilt the dial, dial perhaps towards decarbonisation and away from short-run cost considerations? That, that's not how you seem to answer the question. Is it more about well, aligning with others? Well, I suppose that there's, there's two things here. And I think we should chuck in the debate we're having around the net zero duty and whether Ofgem should have a specific duty focused on the, the UK's goals on climate change. And the, the board have been through this in a lot of detail. And we spent a lot of time sort of pushing ourselves to come up with a clear interpretation of our duties today. And we have said for a number of years now that we consider delivering on the climate change goals as part of our statutory goal already. But what I do think both the strategy and policy statement and the net zero duty will do will give us a formal and clear mandate to do so. So whereas, you know, in honesty, a future board could change their mind, they could interpret things differently. I think both of these things allow us to be anchored in the same direction and the right direction as government and the system operator. Um, what has also changed, though, which I think is a massive change for Ofgem, which I alluded to before, is, is the need to do all of this at pace. So whereas I think if you go back, say, five years, and having been in the networks part of the organisation, you'd be very focused on the details of cost. You'd be doing your job rightly to make sure you got value for money for customers. And you'd be very careful about new infrastructure. What you've seen over the last six months and a year with Ofgem is we are approving a huge amount of new investment 
because we appreciate getting the infrastructure built is a thing that really will save customers money and indeed increase our security of supply. So I think it will give us an edge. I think it will help us make that journey, but I think that's a journey we're already on. Uh, we'll, we'll, I think, come back to some of the, the, the points on networks because the, the numbers are actually truly staggering, as you say, in terms of the, the amount of uh, new um, investment that you've approved. Um, I just want to sort of continue a little bit on this uh, this institutional theme here because another duty you've picked up is a, is a duty to promote growth. Um, is that something that's going to, again, going to change things? Does that mean you are obliged to spend in particular ways or worry about particular people's costs? Uh, how, how does that factor into how you run an energy system? Well, look, that is something the government's consulting on, and we're beginning to have the conversation about what that might be, how it might be shaped, and what, what it might mean for our role, and whether genuinely whether it is appropriate for regulators to have a duty on economic growth. Um, my perspective is, is, is fairly simple. You know, We need to recognise what the energy system does for a country. It is there to make sure all of us have access to the supply and that that is secure and that is low cost. But it does play a part in the economic evolution of the country that we're in. So if you want to build a factory, you have to be able to connect well to the system that provides your energy. If you want to grow your manufacturing or, or other facilities, you've also got to have access to something that allows you to compete with other countries. So I think there is a genuine discussion, which we are very open to, with government and with all stakeholders about how we shape that. What we've got to take care of, though, is if you load too many duties on an organisation, it becomes hard to fulfil any of them. So I think there is a genuine question for all of us to shape the right thing. But equally, I think Ofgem recognises we are part of an ecosystem that is part of the economic growth of this country, and we should play that role. The other thing you, you as an institution, you as an individual, being very keen uh, on over the last few years is, is, is supporting the consultation and then the decision on a future system operator, one that's um, independent of national grid and uh, able to take on new roles. So that's a really big change that's coming in the institutional architecture. Why is it you think that's so important to delivering net zero? Well, the funny thing is, you know, we made this proposal early in 2020, pretty much when I first became CEO, and we made a set of quite theoretical arguments about why this was needed. And, and the main reason is, is if you are making this change at this pace, you need a strategic brain to lay out the system that you're moving to. The energy system is not like it was 20 years ago. It's not a static system where the regulator is trying very hard to make sure that anyone who runs a network runs it cheaply. It's a system that is transforming. And if you don't have a part of the system that is driving change and driving progress then and shaping that progress, then I think customers are left at risk and probably we won't make that change that we hope for. And what we've seen as we begin to evolve to this new institution is the system operator is already playing that role. So I mentioned that we approved 20 billion pounds of transmission investment last year, and that was done in a matter of months. Now, I can honestly say, if we had the old system, that would have taken years to approve that much infrastructure at that pace. And the reason we were able to do it is because we already had the system operator lay out nationally what was needed to connect offshore wind. And Ofgem's role then becomes one that is actually much more akin to the heart of what we do. It's much more about making sure that's built at a fair cost, making sure that's built reasonably and making sure that customers get value for money. So what we are hoping for from the system operator is that over time they will expand on that. They will take a much more holistic view across transport, across heating, across what we already use for electricity and what we already use for heavy industry and begin to shape the system as a whole. And out of that, 
Clearly, a lot will still be left to the market, but we'll be able to drive the transition at, you know, frankly, much more value for money, much more engineering coherence and much, much higher pace. And that sounds like you're quite open to the role of off-gem changing, perhaps shrinking in some areas, perhaps growing in others. Yeah, I've been sort of very open that as the role of the system operator expands, perhaps off-gem's role in networks and infrastructure should shrink back somewhat. So, and, and I think it already is, you know, as I say, we would have had years of discussion of the economic case to build a transmission line before we even got to allocating the money for it. I think where we will shrink back is to, you know, a role that is much more akin to the heart of what we do, which is about making sure there's value for money from the system as a whole. So I would like to see a well-resourced, powerful system operator driving change in progress. And I'm very happy for that to mean we see some control of some of the things that we do. Is there anything else in the institutional architecture that you think is uh, needs reforming or is missing uh, if we're going to get to net zero? So I think in terms of the market in institutions and you know the way the market operates, I think having the regulator, having a well-resourced system operator and defining more clearly the roles between us is probably our principal task. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all sorts of other areas, for example, you know, questions around how we drive energy efficiency, how we're going to make some of the fundamental changes in our homes. But I'm happy to say that's more a job for government than me to design it. <laughs> I'm also really struck, I mean, just going back to your uh, earlier career, uh, how successful the CCC have been in. Yes. Uh, one of the ways in which I think they've been successful is actually the legislation requires them to publish a plan and the government to look at it and consider whether that's the plan they want or if not come up with another one is that something you you think could have some benefit in terms of the more technical side of planning the electricity system something that perhaps the fso or another body could do in order to keep that sort of um that integration between the different bodies that you talked about so so eloquently yeah i mean i think you know when you when you think about in steady state what what the fso needs to do it is that whole systems planning that needs to happen. Now, what we've got to figure out between the regulated government and the FSO is what happens if some of the technical answers aren't what ministers consider to be politically acceptable. And equally, from a regulator's point of view, we'll want to make sure that this isn't just a big engineering plan, that people are thinking about outcomes for customers and, of course, costs. Um, but at its heart, I think that should be an iterative process with the FSO owning that technical evolution First of all, I should say nationally, like we're doing with the big transmission lines, but we are out to consultation on creating regional structures that will allow regional planning. Um, and you know, the advantage of that, which I think is a big change for energy, is that can more fully involve local leaders who are thinking about the shape of, of their own place and their own local strategies. So to give an example, Dan, you know, in the future, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be fantastic if you had local leaders thinking about the, the transition they want to make to people's homes into their areas? bringing their understanding of what can happen in planning terms together with those who are thinking about the energy system and how it might evolve to make sure the two things are fully aligned and genuinely we can all drive progress in different ways. And that area-based planning or that regional uh, level is really interesting. We, if we turn a little bit to, uh, to networks now, um, to make that really work, uh, do you need to have that cross-vector planning, that, you know, bring the gas networks in alongside the electricity networks, possibly in some regions, new carbon networks? Um, or can we make quite a lot of progress in the short run just with electricity system planning? So I think you've got to ultimately do it across vectors. Absolutely. So, you know, what you've, because I think one of the big things we, you know, we haven't talked about yet is how we're going to make this transition in how we heat our homes. 
Mm. So how we're going to drive the change either to a more electricity-based solution, which would be ground source and air source heat pumps most likely, or we're going to transition to low-carbon gas. Now, I genuinely think there is a huge role for local areas to shape that. We may well have different solutions in different regions. You've mentioned low-carbon networks, hydrogen networks, for example. All this needs to be part of the system planning. And I think as, as we make this change, where economic incentives for the network companies themselves may not be well aligned with what a local area needs, it is important that someone's owning that. And that's, again, why I think over time the system operator can play a more fundamental role in shaping and driving this, not only at the national level, but also at the regional level. And if they can design the system so they are genuinely involved in local leaders, I think this will enrich all of our roles in this process. Is that a role then for the national system operator, possibly putting common digital uh, frameworks in place? Or is it uh, a role for uh, what we see today as, um, as DNOs? So I think um, a lot of what we're doing right now needs to be driven by the DNOs. They need to be digitalizing their systems. Yeah, the first part of, of, of getting the right data to manage this system more efficiently is putting the measurement in place to make sure you understand what's going on. And I think that is something that these price controls and the, the DNOs, you know, till 2028 really need to deliver. But what you need, particularly if you are going to run a system where companies can grow comfortably nationally, is standardization about how that's done. Mm-hmm. Standardization about how, how the data applies and equally how you trade in that kind of environment. So alongside this kind of local planning role, we are thinking about it may be the system operator, maybe someone else, how you make sure you have consistent standards, but but the driving of it and the implementation of it right now will be done by the local networks. Okay. Let's pivot up to back up to sort of transmission level, possibly taking it all in, in the round again. We we talked a bit about the um the sheer volume of uh, of decisions, investment decisions that you've uh, you've made and how important the FSO or the emerging FSO was in in driving that. I mean, how confident do you feel that that's going to get delivered now? I think the numbers are something like a tripling or a quadrupling of just transmission system uh, build over the next uh, next 10 years or so. Um, what else needs to happen to get to that system, I suppose, is the right way to frame it? Well, I, mean, I had a wonderful presentation from my team about six months ago when we were looking at the emerging plans. And we just looked back at history and we looked back at, you know, when in our history have we ever built transmission lines as quickly as as the plan that we have today and the truth is the only real comparison is between the 1920s and sort of 1940s and 50s and again a very different system but that was driven by strategic planning and someone laying out what the country needs and then building it at pace now you know first step will be to evolve what we have to have that plan that's really important but we talked about that secondly the economic regulation of it so the allowing of the money of the making sure the money is spent well does need to be done at pace. So our aim, roughly, is to make sure that we are not a blocker to this process. So when a transmission company is plotting out what it needs to do, you know how it sort of designs the system, gets planning permission, puts shovels in the ground, that actually builds stuff, that obviously takes time. The economic regulations should fit around that to make sure that our decisions can keep up with the pace, the maximum pace for the projects that are being implemented. I think the third aspect, and perhaps the aspect that we are all concerned about, is the planning regime. Mm. So you know, once you've designed what you've got, you've got to make sure that there is a way in which you can have the right conversation with local communities to make sure that you shape it at pace in a way that meets their needs, but also meets the needs of the national energy system. Now, I know that's something that government are working on, for example, through the national planning statements, but something that I think is critical. 
And then finally, and this really is on the network companies themselves, this needs to be well-run, well-planned, well-managed, and we are going to need a stepped-up level of engineering excellence to make sure that these projects are delivered on time. So my view is, you know, we have that first version of the plan. It's only the first set of transmission going in. I think we need to play a role, and we are playing a role as a regulator to make sure the money's there. We do need the planning system to be fit for purpose and all the environmental permits around it. But the companies themselves, in response, need to step up and stick to the timetables that they've committed to. If all of us do that, I'm sure this is possible. And it's what's going to be needed, not only to deliver net zero, but also to make sure this country has a lower cost system, has a more secure system, and quite frankly, has a system that is much, much more robust to the attempts by any country to be able to manipulate our energy prices in the future. Does that need to be driven through uh, the regulated asset base, or is there a role for competition in building out these networks? The government's obviously passing legislation to enable it to do that, and it doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that that's needs to be used. Um, do you think that could... Is, is, that, is that part of the old world of driving costs down or part of the new world of bringing in more competition that can help um, deliver faster? So I think there's sort of a timing issue here. So I think in the very short term, we accept the arguments that, you know, we're not the only country building transmission lines. You know, virtually every country across Europe is trying to do the same thing. So the supply chain, the people that are providing this equipment is also very tight and is also under high demand. So in the short term, we accept the argument that by approving a program for the existing monopoly companies, is the most effective way to make sure we drive pace and indeed we drive value for money. But over time, I think competition could have a role to play, actually. And the reason for that is, you know, not just about cost, it's also about pace and ability to deliver. So we are very open to and excited about the idea that over time, we may get others into this market and we may may spread the load. There is a huge amount to be done. So having different players doing that could be something that brings big benefits. But right now, this first trance really is about those monopoly companies stepping up and delivering. Before we leave networks, I must ask you about um, connections. So we've spent rightly quite a bit of time talking about how much more network we need to build, but there's actually probably quite a lot of unrealized capacity in the, in the current network. And we're seeing some really long delivery dates, well beyond the 2035 uh, net zero deadline. It, what needs to change here to free up capacity on the network so that people can actually build the renewable projects, the battery projects that we need in the system? Yeah, look, I mean, this is there's two dimensions. This one is building the infrastructure you need, and the second is making sure people can get projects away and, and get them connected. Um, we came out last week and really laid out for the system operator and the industry what we expect to happen. And indeed, you know, Vincent and the team and the system operator have delivered a five-point plan to try and change this. Put really simply, and Daniel, remember this, back in the department, we were thinking about trying to persuade people to build renewables projects. And part of that was saying to them, you know, if you apply for a connection, you'll get a connection and it'll be there. And therefore, you can tick that off the developer's worry list. And the, the good problem to have is we have seen a huge uplift in people trying to develop low carbon projects. And so we have 300 gigawatts, which is in many scenarios what we need in 2050, trying to connect to the system. The problem right now is the queue that has developed doesn't really sort between the projects that we think are going to deliver and the projects which might not get there. So put really simply, what we are going to need to do is to make sure that if you cannot progress your your project, if you cannot get planning permission, if you cannot get the right financing, if you aren't demonstrating that you're going to need your slot, then over time, you need to leave that queue and let somebody else who is moving faster take up that space. 
Now, the truth is that will make a huge difference to the connections dates and the connections queues that we've seen. It's hard to predict exactly, but National Grid think it will reduce connection times by between two and 10 years, which will bring a lot of those post-2030 back to the right side of that line and to help us deliver those 2030 and 2035 targets. One last yeah. thing I should say on connections is, you know, as a regulator, we're keeping this under review. We've also said that if more radical reform is needed, then we will step in and make those changes. So if we don't see the industry move quickly enough, we're going to have to do more. And that will mean, frankly, more striding conditions on developers to make sure we get the connections that we need for the projects that need them. Let's turn to markets then. So you've talked a lot about networks and actually quite a lot about how we need to get better in different meanings of the word planning the system. Do you think market reforms are still important in that framework where so much is going to be planned? Um, The government's obviously got a big uh, review of electricity market arrangements that includes things like locational marginal pricing, different ways of increasing merchant exposure on subsidised renewables. What's the right balance between a centrally planned system and one that allows decentralised decisions because of the market? So, you know, in my kind of really simple sort of world, you've got planning we've talked about, you've got wholesale market reform and retail market reform. And for me, they are all three big building blocks of how we get to that system that we hope to get to where, you know, we're driving electric cars, we're flexible in the point at which we charge them, we're using our energy in a very different way, and we're building the infrastructure we need to build to make all that happen. So I think alongside, you know, developing the role of the system operator, yes, we do need to look at our wholesale market. And we do need to consider also how we're going to make sure the customer interface in all of this works for customers, because all of us, I think, don't need to change the service we get from our energy system, but we probably need to change very much the way we use that system to get that service. Now, coming on to to wholesale markets, I think there's two dimensions that we're all thinking about. First of all is how do you get the right incentives in the system in different locations? How do you make sure that when there's a lot of people generating the the market in in a particular area and you can't get that out through the transmission system or through the wires, you have an appropriate market that can make the best of that. Um, but also a time-based system that allows us to be able to tap into the times when the wind's blowing in the middle of the night, where actually that's where we should all be in the future charging our cars, because that's when electricity is most abundant. So for me, thinking really hard, almost you know, less, first of all, about the technicalities of, of what wholesale market you need, but starting from you know, what sort of incentives do we need and what sort of behaviours are we expecting from customers, generators, storage developers, and indeed from, from suppliers themselves, and then working back to the kind of market that you'd expect to deliver that. So I think it's one of the big things we'll need to focus on in the next five years. Let's do that then. Let's dig into the, the, the retail and the consumer end of market reform. Um, do you think consumers will worry about the potential to be exposed to bigger price spikes in, in different times when it's more expensive? Um, or will they welcome it as the opportunity to move their demand to other other times how 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 do you think that balance between protection and efficiency is going to play out in the future so look i think um one thing we all need to to learn and we've definitely learned that in the last two years is is that consumers are not a kind of homogenous sort of group of people who respond so i think we need to respect the fact that there will be there already are customers out there who are really keen to use their energy differently you know, there are people who are on flexible tariffs right now, and, and, and I think that's something that will grow. And we should say the flexibility service that was launched sort of last year in response mm. to what could have been a very tight winter 
had take up that I think pleasantly surprised all of us. Now, to be honest, the prices were very high relative to other things to get that behavior change. But clearly, there was a lot of interest given the fact that we don't have the technology in place. And it was quite an intensive thing to reduce your demand because it was, frankly, switching things off. Um, but equally, you know, what, what retail regulation has shown us in the last 10 years is we need to be thoughtful about those customers that do want to be protected. And so I think there's going to be a balance to strike, actually, for people. I think it might depend on what type of customer you are. There are electricity parts of electricity demand that are very easy to flex. So if you do have an electric car, it doesn't really matter when you charge it. And so therefore, having a system that chooses the cheapest time of day, it sounds like a good thing, you know, almost universally. I think where it becomes more difficult is where you have people that have energy needs that are hard to move. And we do need to think hard about how you support the most vulnerable and how you make sure that the customers aren't exploited in that process. So I think there is a really big job in the future, as well as that wholesale market, which Dan, you and I could talk for hours about the technicalities of, to a retail market that quite frankly treats customers like people and thinks about how this system is going to interact with what all of us do. But what I'm optimistic about, and this goes for every type of customer, is the conversations I have with people, particularly through the crisis, is opportunities that are there to to save money, to reduce your bills, are things that people want to engage with. And what I found really interesting is actually, funnily enough, when I talk to older customers, Mm. customers who remember Economy 7, this all feels quite intuitive for them, actually. They're like, well, okay, I could do something later in the night and that that would reduce my bills. So I don't think we should be complacent about that change but i don't think we should assume that everyone's going to be against it either you know actually some people a long time ago have been used to a system that did exactly that sort of thing obviously in a a more um more controlled way than perhaps we're envisaging in the future is there a role for a social tariff in this so we've been sort of quite clear that a social tariff is something we would like to explore with government um in part in the short term that is simply about the dynamics of the market we're in and perhaps about making sure that if we do get another price spike, we can target support uh, those who are most vulnerable. I mean, the energy price guarantee was something Ofgem supported. It's something, that, in fact, that we are a big part of implementing. But it covered all of us. I think, you know, were we to face something similar in the future, perhaps you have a smaller scale, it would be good to think we had a system within energy to target those who are most under stress, which is vulnerable customers with large energy needs. So if you have a disability in your family, if you have a dependency on the energy system, so that's definitely something that we, we would like to see explored and should be a part of the conversation about the long term. It may be a social tariff. It may be different forms of regulation for protection. But all that is something that I think we need to work through with customers, with the consumer groups and indeed with suppliers themselves. You started to paint a bit of a picture about what the uh, retail market of the future might look like. Um Is there a way in which regulation will need to shift? You need to do things differently in order to uh, both bring in those signals, but also shift perhaps more to allowing people to sell services and um, uh, rather than a, a just a lowest cost commodity. Is there, is, there a, is there a change in mindset for Ofgem in this as well? So I think there's a, a change in mindset for all of us, actually. Um, you know, when you think about that new role that you are hoping customers will play in, in this system and you think about energy being a service rather than simply being about the number of kilowatt hours you're, you're getting through your meter and through your gas meter. That is something that I think all of us need to reshape. Now, we've got very clear short-term priorities, clearly financial resilience, given the impact the gas crisis had on the retail market. Service standards need to improve from where they are right now, and we're working hard 
with the companies to do that. And you mentioned some of our enforcement and compliance cases over the last few days. Um, and equally, you know, we need to begin to adapt pricing regulation so that it's ready for this world that we're describing. Um, but I do think, you know, an open conversation about the right regulatory model when we get to that destination is something all of us need to have. And I don't think right now anyone has a clear answer to make sure that you can regulate in a way that's flexible enough so we can take advantage of these new tariffs and make sure we're all getting our energy at the cheapest time, but equally make sure customers are sufficiently protected. That's excellent, Jonathan. And, and I mean, at the risk of uh, carrying on doing another double header like we did last time, I'm going to try <laughs> and draw it a bit of a close here. So we've, we've talked a lot about the institutions, which is, I think, important, the, the different networks and the markets. I think I might close by sort of trying to get you to give me a bit of a dashboard, sort of a red, amber, green rating of where we are in a couple of areas across the across the system, and perhaps a sentence or so to explain why you've why you've given it that judgment. So, in terms of how well set we are to get to a net zero system, uh, how how well set are we in terms of having a holistic design, one that all the key parties agree on? I would have to give it somewhere between an amber and an amber red, I think because of the pace at which we need to move. I think there's two questions there, and it depends how you interpret this. So in terms of how well set we are for 2050, my view is for the energy part of that task. And remember, there's farming and all sorts of other things mm -hmm. that need to be dealt with. But for the energy part of that, I think we're pretty well set, actually. I think the transition that the UK is pushing and the targets that the government have laid out for getting to 2035 puts us in quite a strong position to make that ultimate transition. But we need to be honest with ourselves. That Transition to 2035 is a big challenge, and it's something that all of us are going to need to be part of. So I think the next two years are critical for the regulator, and particularly for the system operator, because that plan that is produced will be the basis of the change we make over the next 10 years and will be critical to that. Very good. The second one to rate is one you've talked about a, a lot on the podcast today, uh, which is regulatory speed. And I'm not just talking about Ofgem here. I'm thinking about all the other regulators in the space, whether they're environmental or, or, or government. But how are we doing on that point about pace you talked about? So I think I'd break it down. I think on economic regulation, particularly around infrastructure, I'm sort of, you know, as a, as a good civil servant, I never get to green. So I'm, I'm an amber in. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I think that, that I think, you know, we, we've got to accept there's still a challenge. You've got to accept that Ofgem and other, other institutions need to, to work hard to deliver at pace. And frankly, we are dependent on the companies because a lot of this is about the quality of what the work that the companies do to make sure we feel sufficiently comfortable on behalf of customers to unlock billions and billions of pounds. Um, I think across the wider system of us, as I've said, we, we need to evolve planning. We need to evolve environmental sense. And I think we need to appreciate that that is a very hard task because in both senses, there are some massive objectives there that you're making trade-offs around. And how people feel about their local area is a really, really strong part of quality of life. So I'm, I'm not sort of concerned about the sort of process pace of this, but there are some tough questions and we'll all need to work through those. Third one is money, uh, both the availability of it, given the international competition, uh, the very welcome international competition to decarbonize systems uh, and the cost of it. How are we feeling about money? I'm probably going to say something slightly controversial here. I, Dan, since I have been in energy, which is probably since 2006, I have always been told there's an international competition for money and it's going to be very hard to get money into projects. And in fact, as I ran EMR, I was told that, you know, the market was incredibly confusing and it was really hard to get money into projects. And throughout that time, almost at the same time, money was going into all the different systems we put in place. I think my view is really simple. There is absolutely more international competition now. 
Now, the IRA program in the US is definitely something that all investors are talking about. But I believe if you get the regulation right, if you get a stable system, you know, I, I very strongly believe we'll get the money behind it. And, and, and what gives me that sort of sense of comfort is not just the sort of experience of the last 15 years. It's also looking into the market now. So the trading for network companies, for example, is very healthy. And that suggests there's a way to go before we need to worry too much about that. I'm not being complacent about it, but I do think you know, the job here is to get the regime right. And I'm sure the money will flow. Jonathan, that sounded dangerously like a green. Well, I think that's a kind of amber, amberish lime green. That's as far as you can ever go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, final one. Um, consumer acceptance. Um, both of the sort of the current system and the things that are happening now, but also the things you know that we need to do in order to get to net zero. So I think genuinely, I, I would put that which again between amber and amber red. I think we need to, to appreciate consumers have been through an incredibly hard time in the last two years. You know, you cannot sort of experience an increase in your bills of, of sort of 300% in some cases, you know, going from a thousand pounds to two and a half thousand pounds on average um, is something that is not going to be met with a huge amount of consumer distress and ultimately understandable distrust as a result of that. Um, equally, the concepts that we're talking about are very familiar to those who are sort of in the energy field. We've been talking about some of these things for a very long time, but they are very new. I mean, if I can just give a personal example, I've just, we have just got a secondhand electric car and, you know, that change for us was, was a very new thing. And we are probably amongst the sort of group of early adopters you'd imagine, you'd imagine we'd be, you know, to go through that change and to have customers go through the sorts of changes they're going to, to need to go through, I think is going to take a lot of thought. And if I had one kind of sort of last comment about how we regulate, how we make policy, and that is to make sure we are starting with the people out there who are using the system. And that probably means sort of certainly using our economics and using the best economics we have, but not just relying on that. A lot of this is going to be about behavior change, about people accepting things might feel a bit different the way they felt before. And my experience has been, if you're blind to that, then that's when things become very, very difficult to do. Jonathan, thank you. That's a really good point to, to end on. Uh, covered an awful lot of ground there. Uh, thank you very much for your time. It's been really good to have you back on the podcast. Thanks. Thank you. That was Dan Monzani, Aurora's Managing Director for the UK and Ireland, talking to Jonathan Brearley, Ofgem's Chief Executive Officer. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.